Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Cheers, gentlemen. Cheers, Cheers. Patrick. Thank you for joining us for uh, Resolve Riffs and uh, it being uh, 24 hours earlier than usual. Appreciate the... um, uh, the ability to come on and, and I hear you're you're also on a on a Caribbean island. That's, That's right. Fantastic. I, I will say uh that anyone listening to this uh should realize that if, if there is no investment advice here, there's only fun and opinions and some thoughts and that you should get uh help, you should probably go subscribe to Patrick's service and get some help with your trading if you're doing that, etc. All of those things. We're going to have a wide-ranging, unbridled conversation, and we want the ability to do so. So uh, no financial advice here, not by these four scallywags, for sure. Now, with that said, welcome, Patrick. Uh, we oh, love your you. stuff. And um, maybe, why don't we kick it off with you giving a little bit of your background for everybody, because you'll do a much better job of it than we will. And then, Richard, sure. I'm going to let you kind of uh, run this. You've kind of got a, a, a bit of a uh, some thoughts that you want to... So I'm going to let you kind of... Uh, roll with it, and I'm just going to pipe in where I want. Sounds All good. All right. Sounds good. So who's first? Me? Mm-hmm. Please. All right. Uh, well, I do, what kind of background do you want? You want where, like my backstory, or do you want actually just what I'm doing right now? Like All of it. Well, if you tell us what you're doing right now, and you used to be a trash collector, we might not put as much emphasis on what you're saying. <laughs> Uh, we might you know, do more. I'm not well, sure. You know what? Actually, uh, you know what? We're, I, I'd love to circle back to it uh, because um, when I uh, graduated out of school, I um, I got a job working at CIBC uh, on their um, 
at their discount brokerage right out of school. So I was uh, uh, trading just as a kid on there. And I got right into it in uh, 1999. So my first experience was going right into the bubble peak. I want to circle back to that. Well, well uh, that's, a, that's a fun story we can, we can talk about. And I had the opportunity uh, to, uh, to work uh, on an investment team over there later on uh, where I was the trader managing uh, the um, a pool, about a $50 million pool of just option writing. And so all I was doing was premium harvesting, uh, just selling uh, puts and covered call writing and doing that with over and over again. That's where I cut my teeth and learned everything on options uh, doing that. And then I spun off and, and this, have been in this business that I am for about 10 years. Uh, there, there was a thing that's uh, on the CIBC floor that it, you can stay 10 years, but after 10 years, you're a lifer. And so you either had to make a decision to, to kind of go and, and um, chart your own course or or you're going to be a, a, a bank guy forever. And so, so back about um, when I was uh, about 10 years, at, about a decade ago, I spun off and uh, been doing what I'm doing now. So I'm, I'm a, at uh, running big picture trading. And uh, we uh, basically are doing market analytics and I'm providing all sorts of analysis on the markets and, and, uh, and providing a, a trade and opportunity ideas to, to my members. And I run a couple podcasts, uh, the, uh, the Market Huddle and, uh, and I co-host uh, Macro Voices with Eric as well. And so had the opportunity to just pay, like, like what you guys are doing, like uh, pick the brains of other people and, and just have a great conversation to learn. It's, I've learned so much from this process and uh, it's, it's, it's so great. And it's, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Isn't it one of the blessings of, of the, the quarantine world? Uh, th- this whole uh, idea for us stemmed out of the fact that we couldn't have those water cooler conversations as much. Yeah, and we just wanted to have some chats with with people about stuff that's investing, um, uh, sort of centered, and it just gave us a great opportunity to to sort of share those conversations with with other people as well. So, yeah. one of the what are the hidden blessings of uh, of quarantine? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, so, Patrick, we yeah. know of your uh, options background, but what else do you bring to the table when it comes to your toolkit for making sense of of the world of investing and, and what kind of framework do you use for, for your hypotheses? Well, first of all, I have, uh, I have the blessing of, of predominantly being a trader, uh, which basically, you know, when you're managing money uh, and especially large sums of money, you have to follow all sorts of uh, portfolio theory and, and you have to follow diversification and all sorts of things as a fiduciary to, to make sure you're doing everything right. And as a trader, you can be a little bit more of a gunslinger. You can see an opportunity and you can act upon it. So uh, I have a I have the opportunity of of being able to uh, be long or short or be in cash or or and have all sorts of flexibility to be uh, selling premium or going long gamma all sorts of different things and really it's about finding asymmetry it's about where can I find an opportunity where I can manage the risk there's some some opportunity where the the risk can be limited defined in some way and the opportunity is really great if it works and it doesn't have to always work it's just about uh, finding that process. So uh, w- a big picture trading, w- w- I was originally partnered with um, uh, some guys uh, that we were doing a, a, a trading program, but they were 
day traders and they were just uh, in and out of the market, just trading spoos. And I, I did it for a while, but it, I realized after a while that the real money was in catching the really big moves, not just uh, fighting the machine, trying to clip a, a, a paycheck down in the trenches uh, in and out within seconds or minutes. Uh, you know, it was more that, look, if I can just catch these bigger moves in the market, just a time where the cycle is, that's where the, the opportunity is. And that's really where I spun off from them and started big picture trading, hence the name. And it really... Uh, came about on the idea that you want to use a top-down process so uh, and of, of macro. You want to understand what is actually the unfolding reality in the macro space. And, um, and the fundamentals are incredibly important, but they're very hard to market time based on the fundamentals alone because uh, the trends uh, that are emergent are uh, very much driven by things like uh, money flow and, and when the cycles are, are playing out. And this is where uh, I love technical analysis, but technical analysis in itself is incomplete. But in a, in a way, fundamental analysis is somewhat incomplete as well. There's this beautiful way of, uh, I always like to say I like to uh, technically trade fundamentally good things. You need to kind of merge, um, you got to merge uh, the whole process together. And, uh, and so when I'm doing this top-down process of finding uh, my opportunities, uh, I'm looking at what are the big macro trends, where, where is the timing associated, and then I bring in the options market to try to build the asymmetry and the opportunity. How can I express this trade in a way where I could take it in the right size, know what my risk is uh, defined to, how, uh, where am I going to take my profits, how I'm going to manage it, the trade along the way, and, and develop a, an overall methodology that, that follows this stream of thought. And so I want to get a couple of things there. Um, so how do, how do the options help you harness the big trends? I also want to understand a little bit more about maybe getting into how you sort of identify those trends, what are your kind of is your, your check, checklist indicators, if you will. But maybe before we do that, how do the options for you provide that opportunity to harness those big moves? Uh, well, uh, there are... It, the options market is evolving, so it's not always the same cookie cutter strategy. It has to change. Like for instance, uh, right now it's very challenging to, for instance, put on a Bitcoin short uh, with the options market. Like you can use something like a MicroStrategy uh, or one of these companies that have fully listed options that are committed. But the uh, the skews and the volatility premiums mean that it, it's not very asymmetric to buy a put option outright on this market. So you can't say, I just use options. There has to be the right conditions for the setup in order to build a trade that way. And then you have to be creative on how you construct it. But options are, are to me, uh, the convexity and being long options uh, is something that I find a lot of um, uh, kind of tactical ability to, uh, to put on trades in an interesting way. So like, um, uh, a lot of people don't like the theta burn. The idea that uh, when I when I buy this option, I have a defined time frame. My my option is time decaying, and it's going to cost me money. There's a carry cost to expressing the trade uh, with an option. But I look at it from a, a little bit of a different perspective, where I remove substantial amounts of risk 
beyond that premium. Uh, often, one of the reasons why traders need to, or investors and, uh, and portfolio managers need to anchor off of diversification is because it's one of the most commonly accepted ways of managing risk, right? Is that you diversify uh, with uncorrelated assets. But uh, I could take on a very concentrated position on a theme that I feel incredibly high conviction on and I can define my risk to a, a set amount of the portfolio, and it's an absolute risk. So if I say I'm not willing to risk more than 1% or 2% of my portfolio in maximum loss on this idea, I could still have even a 20-30% allocation to the trade idea uh, and, uh, and still be able to define with an option my risk to that limited amount. Now, if my high conviction idea comes to fruition, I'm levered up properly and exposed to, uh, to grabbing that, uh, that return, while somebody that's over-diversified, the, the obstacle with diversification is that while it diversifies risk, it also dilutes chances of making big returns. Because uh, one thing that's working, the other thing's not, and, and, you're, and you're getting the average return, and it's so more of a, a methodical uh, rise. And, and that's great if you're managing someone's uh, multi-million dollar net worth, but when some investor comes in with $100,000, they're not looking for a 7% return. They're looking to, to make a meaningful return on their money so that they can actually um, you know, watch their money grow. And so each one has a different uh, way of approaching it. And while there's a lot of investors and, and money managers such as yourselves that focus on uh, the very traditional role, and there's nothing wrong with that, but uh, I try to present alternative ways of approaching it and finding interesting ways of managing the risk still while, while leveraging up for those opportunities to, that, that are my big favorite themes. And so how do you think about the sizing of those positions? I mean, you're not relying on a grand portfolio construction theme. Rather, you're being so, sort of more opportunistic in the, in, in, the, uh, in the themes that you're addressing. How, how are you thinking about that position sizing? How are you fitting those different moving parts in the portfolio? Right. So, uh, so I, I use a very uh, – I'm a trader. I'm not. Uh, I'm not a portfolio manager, so I use a, a very trader approach to to the sizing of my risk, which is it's a percentage of the portfolio. So, uh, so if I'm sizing my risk to one percent or two percent uh, per trade, uh, then I'm working backwards. So if I'm trading a million dollars, I can go in there and I'm sizing the trade based upon knowing that if everything goes wrong, I'm going to get nipped by ten grand. Right. Like that's uh, that's my exit. That's where I know. And I can I can take on a trade as big as I want so long as I can bring my risk down to that that amount. And um, and I think that that's a, a compelling way of approaching it. And what I uh, what I love doing with options is uh, being able to through this process leverage up the portfolio to considerable leverage that most people would find uh, gut wrenching. Uh, but I uh, but I was able to I'm able to do it because I construct the trades in a way that each of these risks are defined. So I'll give you an example. Let's say I went long gold, uh, and I and I turn around and gold goes up, let's say three percent or four percent on the upside, and what I often will do is uh, sacrifice the immediate returns that I've made to uh, to buy a protective put 
to actually hedge or lock in that gain. Now, I basically use the capital gains that I've earned to actually finance the insurance, but I've actually made it a risk-free trade because now the, the put has actually paid for, uh, uh, is paid for by the capital gain. Now I have 100% of the upside and all the downside risk has been removed. Now I can turn around and leverage into a new opportunity because this one that I'm long is already been uh, constructed into being a risk-free trade. This, is a, this type of tr uh, methodology is not commonly utilized in our, sp uh, on our space. There isn't too many people that, that approach uh, their methodologies that way, but so long as you... Um, are developing a way of always managing risk. That's the first thing. I, like when I train traders, I say, stop calling yourself a trader. Call yourself a risk manager because the first thing you have to do is always manage the risk. The profits take care of themselves. If you, if you get enough of the trades uh, into enough trades, just by accident, you're going to make money on the upside if you get into enough opportunities. Uh, but what it is, is that uh, we, especially retail investors, fall into a trap where they can't sell a loser. They can't sell something at a loss. And they go down the spiral of allowing something just to get bigger and bigger and worse and worse. And the damage that it's doing to your portfolio traps them. Uh, you know, there's that saying that uh, on Bay Street, at least it was my day, where it's like the definition of a long-term investment is a short-term trade you're losing on. Uh, I don't know. Have you guys ever heard that one? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah and, and, that trade just turned into an investment i'm now a yeah, long-term investor yeah. and so so what i love is the way that i when when i construct a trade there's always because an option has a defined time there's also an inherent exit strategy built into it which is is that if it's not working if i bought a one month protective put just for simplicity's sake um if in one month it's gone against me there's a forced exit coming at expiration uh, and it forces me to go back to cash and reevaluate. Well, maybe I was wrong. Either I was early. That's what we always say. We're not never wrong in the markets. We're just early, right? Uh, but uh, so either you were early to the catching the cycle or whichever you're you're looking for. You have to step back, reevaluate, and then when you do that, you're looking at well, should I get back in? Should I, uh, is there, or should I be allocating the money to another opportunity that has developed since um, the last time I was looking at the markets, right? And, and you're always reevaluating it. And that's, uh, there's a fluidity to, to trading that way. And it's not, a, it's not easy for uh, anyone to just do. You have to develop a, an actual trade plan for following these types of rules and, and going can through I, it. Can I, can I uh, dig a bit more into that trade plan? Yeah. So different um, traders have very different perspectives in terms of the the, the timeline that they're looking at, long-term, mid-term, short-term, and also what tools they're using to evaluate. So technical analysis is fairly popular. Fundamental, you know, understanding what is happening at global yeah. macro scale. Um, that's, what, that's what do you lean on most? Well, uh, I uh, I feel that uh, the biggest money is always made uh, when you're lined up with the big macro fundamental, uh, right? Like, um, uh, you, like you could trade, for instance, gold to the downside. So you could be a technician and see uh, that it crossed below a 50-day moving average and some technician says, oh, I'm going to short it and then they're going to hit it. But there isn't a, a macro fundamental reason, in my opinion, to be 
short gold. And therefore, that's just a very short-term trade that may not even have very much asymmetry in it. It's just an opportunity for a trader to clip something if they're lucky. But catching the next big uh, um, breakout on the upside during a reflation impulse in the markets, uh, there is a big upside. And so, uh, so it, I'm more inclined in that circumstance to trade in line with the macro fundamentals of the narrative that we build. And I'm using only the technicals as an action point because when you're dealing with options, you have a, a defined time horizon. And therefore, you need something that's an action point saying, this is when I should act upon the opportunity, right? Uh, and uh, and if, if you just buy it on fundamentals alone, you almost have to buy the underlying because you might have like a value investor, you might have to have a three to five year time horizon on, on, uh, on holding something like that. And that doesn't necessarily lend well to options trading, which have these much shorter time horizons for and you're suffering theta berm carry costs all sorts of different things built into into the trade and so when you're when you're you need to have some degree of market timing when using options and that's that's where you have to but macro uh having some sort of bigger macro um, landscape that you've built and i i have the opportunity of listening to so many really sm smart macro investors come on to our different shows, it helps me uh, construct a, a, a base narrative of what I think can happen. And then I'm always stress testing it against the technicals and the charts to see, well, is that the unfolding reality right now? Is it, I mean, it's great to have- Every player just a bear all the time? Isn't everything, every macro is like, it's always going to blow <laughs> well, up. If, if, you, if you listen to macro everything. voices, then obviously that's the case. You're talking about gold. Yeah, he's mentioned gold as an example a couple of times, so I'm guessing he's pretty long gold at this point. So, so uh, you know, sorry. I just so you no, got the macro level, you got your technicals. I've also heard you talk about like uh, on the options expiring flows and triple witching out. Like, there's there's certain yeah. flows information that I that I think you right. use as well to help you yes. with entry and exit points. Is that right? Oh. Like, uh, well, those flows are much more relevant to um, things like uh, a week-in, week-out timing, uh, like uh, the gamma pin, which is a common thing that is uh, develops into an option exploration, is just the fact that dealers have to be buying and selling that many more futures in order to keep themselves hedged out. And therefore, there's a natural pinning effect to the market. And so if you're uh, trading, let's say, a, a one-week-out option, expecting big volatility, and you're doing it into an option exploration with a huge uh, huge gamma pin, you're uh, fighting a natural resistance. You're, you'd have to have a true macro catalyst emerge to really unpin the market and drive an impulse move. And so uh, we, it's more... Um, that that doesn't drive my macro narrative. It's more that's more getting into the granular parts of of uh, the the short term market timing. You know the way uh, Kevin and I at, on the market huddle always talk about is that uh, when the market huddle we're like two traders in the trenches. So like if we were, it was like World War One and we got bullets flying over our heads, like you're you're out right there in the in the trench on the front line. While a lot of macro traders are out, the generals in the back. You know they're sitting there making uh, the this is the big picture of what's happening, right? And traders, you're you're right in there. You're in the grind. 
uh, fighting, uh, you know, to get the better fill, to get to get the perfect execution. To and so it's a balancing act. The, the macro is a something I lean on. It's something I always have in the back. But there's no point in like uh, you know, like I for instance, uh, I'll give you an example. I was uh, for a long time. Uh, uh, I was always talking with Brent Johnson, you know, with his milkshake theory. And, uh, you know, I, I got to spend some time with him down in, in San Francisco and, and we always shoot the shit. And for the longest time, I subscribed to the view that, you know, dollar strength was, was a narrative, but there was a technical backdrop for it. There was a technical uptrend in the dollar for years. That was something that, uh, that I was able to see, well, there's a macro narrative and the trends emerging on the charts are confirming that macro narrative and I'm going to stay. But as soon as that dollar trend shifted and as soon as we saw the liquidity flows shift and as soon as the dollar became incredibly distributed, well, you know, Brent's on his own. <laughs> you know, like uh, I, I'm, uh, I'm going to adapt to the, the unfolding reality. And, and if, the, if the dollar bear here is coming in, well, if, if I got the story wrong, well, then let me go to the drawing board and what could be the story. And you have to go and rethink it and ask what it, what is happening that's different than what you originally constructed in your macro narrative. Uh, and it's always a, a stress test. I, I find uh, being a good trader involves a large amount of humility. Uh, the, the more I find someone that is a cocky piece of shit that, uh, that is, uh, that is so sure they know exactly what's going to happen. You know that you do not want to, uh, to take that person's advice because there's going to be a moment where the market is going to school them. Uh, you, you, uh, especially good, your priors, right? Yeah. You, uh, a good, a good trader, uh, is always willing to stress test their ideas to see whether they got it right and have the mental flexibility to say it's not working. There's something different happening and I'm not going to lose any more money trying to force onto the market something that isn't happening. You have to be able sure. to be constantly, constantly updating your priors. Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely. was so cocky. I became a quant. Not <laughs> over again. I'm like, okay, somebody, some, some machine needs to make those decisions for me. Um, <laughs> so maybe to summarize, Patrick, you're looking for convergence between the technical analysis that you're using with the macro backdrop of the oh, narrative, sure. and you're looking for that convergence, and you're expressing those views through options because you're looking for the symmetry and the yes. limited loss and the, and the asymmetry of, of the gains that you can get from the the options. Right? Yeah. And are, are these primarily? Uh, exchange options or are you looking at yeah, in, in uh, OTC? Yeah, unfortunately I'm I'm not a big enough trader to go OTC yet. So uh, like uh, I don't have my ISDA account. But uh, but uh, the uh, uh, I so I, I predominantly uh, focus on exchange traded options and and rightfully so there's good liquidity and all of my members and anyone following my work can actually replicate what I'm doing if they like the idea. Uh, and so exchange traded options are, are for sure uh, the, the better way that we always approach uh, the markets. What, what sort of indicators or data sources are you using to track the, the gamma pin levels and th those types of, of sort of very unique uh, viewpoints? Yeah. 
Well, I actually, I'm very good at cherry picking other people's work. Uh, I, I, I don't, I don't actually do my own gamma calculations. So we're good, we're good friends with like uh, uh, both uh, Charlie McElligot and uh, and uh, Brent Kachuba over at Spot Gamma, and uh, and we uh, we have a good relationship with them. So we get their work. So the, I mean, the one thing that I, I, I. I'm a trader first and foremost, so uh, I don't get in the trenches doing my own analysis all the uh, all the time. It, especially when there's smarter people that are allocating all of their time to come up with the data. And uh, why why am I going to go and try to like do I uh, am I creating alpha by trying to for me to uh, to get an edge over them? Or are they giving me the backdrop of their information for a, a small subscription fee and I can now go on and trade understanding the data that they're producing? I mean, I mean, you want to understand who's creating the data and how they're creating it. And, and, uh, and is it good data? Is it relevant? It, does it add value to your trading? You have to go through that process, but I don't mind allowing other people to do the work for me. Uh, it's, uh, it, and so these guys are pretty good. So if it, as the Spot Gamma site is a great low-cost uh, subscription site to give you the levels, it's, uh, he does a great job over there. And that makes sense. I think, you know, Richard, I think you summarized it as you got your, your the convergence between the global macro, the technicals, but also I think this idea of understanding the flows and the gamma is more about avoiding landmines when you're trying to, to, to put your trades on, right? An important it, it, thing to think about. It's an important consideration. And generally, uh, uh, what we have seen is a substantial growth in the use of options. Actually, you know, if you share the screen over here, um, let me just see. This is uh, this is actually a recent chart from uh, uh, Brent Kachuba over at Spot Gamma. And what this is actually showing, the blue line, what, what we're looking at here is taking the difference between options that were uh, uh, purchased to open as a buy versus selling to open. So how many uh, sellers of premium are there versus buyers? And in blue is equity call options. And what you're continuously seeing today is, is that all of these Robin Hooders and all of these new wave of traders that have come in in this po uh, COVID period where it, like, it's an amazing phenomenon, by the way, what we saw. Uh, let me just zoom in on this. If I, so you guys no, that's good. Know. I just wanted to see that that started getting out of control uh, January yeah. 2020. Is that what we're saying? Yeah. Uh, that it, yeah. But no, it was about April. It, it started to really spike in April. Yeah. Uh, and what, uh, what we had was a wave of people that basically were stuck at home getting serb checks and they were like i'm gonna be a day trader like it, it, it's amazing that became day traders yeah, yeah. It, it's um it's it's amazing the phenomenon that we saw in this i, I never would have predicted in a million years i i was so shocked to see how this post-covid period um, emerged it was told i would have never been able to have predicted this uh, the way it played out in a million years but it is what, it, what the conditions from we are but anyway the point here that on this chart is showing uh, the uh, equity calls and uh, what it's showing here is that the, uh, the we have ever increasing amounts of uh, traders buying to open call options to rent the upside of the market and it's becoming uh, an increasingly popular uh, thing to do. And uh, that is just uh, uh, evidence of the froth 
that that is uh, currently in the markets this uh, this air of easy money where everyone just can go like it just the amount of stuff that you see on TikTok now with with these people saying it's really easy i just look for a stock that's going up i buy it a week later i sell it and look how much money i made right like so, these guys like that's like a, that's a, their, the the new investment strategy of 2021 right uh, it's um and so a lot of these traders are using call options to do this and um, that shows a lot of froth, but it also shows that someone's on the other side of that. So if um, uh, retail investors and institutions are net buyers of calls, who's the seller? The dealer. Uh, and so the dealer is short gamma. And, uh, and now what happens is that as the gamma on these options into an expiration is coming up, uh, they're... they're uh, actually going to be suppressing uh, this. Oh, it depends actually what the conditions are, whether they have to buy up the market to the upside from there. But option flows are a big deal now. They weren't a big deal a year or two ago. Like when I started in the options business, I thought this was my little secret thing. I'm going to just be me and a bunch of traders are going to take advantage of the options market. Now everyone seems to be an options expert. It's uh, uh, it, like a, a rolling. There's that one guy that made turn 20,000 into 2 million doing Tesla calls. Uh, over the last thing, like all of these crazy stories of people that are just rolling options and, uh, and it's created a bit of a fever on this, but we're finding ourselves, what you see here on this chart, we find ourselves where actually uh, in the, in the OT, uh, sorry, in the, the exchange traded options market uh, for uh, put options, uh, people are actually net sellers of puts while there's an extraordinary ratio of people that are net long calls. And uh, that just shows um, uh, just we're, we're at a stage of sentiment where uh, easy money is in the air. It's like this is this is easy. Just buy the calls and make money. And what's interesting is the last two times that we saw uh, this in what Brent was talking about here was that was January, right before the COVID drop, and again in August. Both times that we were in similar conditions to today was right before some sort of mean reverting market correction, or in the case of January, it was actually quite a severe market crash. Uh, but uh, paying attention to uh, this kind of uh, extremes can it gives you clues as to when things have gotten a little frothy and maybe there's not much asymmetry in being long. It doesn't mean the stock market can't keep going up for a couple more weeks. It's not like I came on your show and I'm marking the exact market top here and calling it. But you know that at some point, there's probably uh, more downside risk than most people are comfortable with. And, and, when, and especially there was... Um, a chart. Let me just see if I can dig dig up this chart. Well, hold on a second here. Uh, but there was this chart showing uh, the uh, here. Oh, I have it right here. Uh, the, these are two other really interesting sentiment charts. This was uh, showing uh, on the right hand side. You have the uh, the um, uh, it's from a Citibank research, and uh, it's the their panic euphoria model. And we have now reached a point in their euphoria blowout that has surpassed the 1999 peak. So now, 
Sorry, you could ahead. push back. I don't want to. I don't want to claim there's a market crash coming like 1999 per se. But what what we do have is a market that's incredibly frothy, uh, and and the air of easy money's there. And what I do know is that through history, whenever it, traders and and investors get so so sure that the upside is the only path, the market plays the role of the great humiliator. And, uh, and, and teaches everyone a good lesson as, as it drives a liquidity correction on the other side. And, um, and so right now, I'm not seeing a lot of asymmetry in pressing the long side of this market. There is definitely the path of least resistance. Like uh, the S&P measures out to 3,900 or uh, maybe even 4,000 on the upside. For the maybe next week or two, the the market may very well tack on a few percent. That is actually uh, something that I would accept as a very reasonable probability. But you're almost trying to squeeze uh, a couple percent on the upside, knowing you're going to get caught in a ten percent market correction. I'm now, and of course, I'm talking trading, not investing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but as a tr- as a trader, you're trying to scalp a couple percent. Now, does that sound asymmetric? I would never take an, uh, a trade like that where I'm going to try and make 2% at the risk of losing 10, right? I, I look for the exact opposite ratio where I can risk two to make 10. And so right now I'm very cautious about the markets. Uh, things have gotten really frothy. Everyone is so sure Janet Yellen's going to take care of business. And, uh, and uh, I'm not so sure. So, <laughs> so, so if you spotted by Bitcoin. <laughs> Sorry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, uh, Bitcoin for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm actually I'm a I'm a no coiner. Sorry. So, so you is there are there any asymmetric trades to the downside at the moment where you see the the limit on the upside and there's a potential asymmetric trade for you on the downside or in this type of froth is that folly? So I always. Uh, I always position myself uh, on the short side of the market by uh, by rolling straddles, uh, and it's a, it's a little uh, more of a. Um, uh, I, I don't know whether you guys want to get me into this, but but uh, it, the point is is that by rolling straddles, your call option often is offsetting what you're losing on the put while you're uh, while you're actually uh, trying to discover where a market top is. So it doesn't involve any real market timing. The problem today is the market has got so much momentum that it's a, it's a dangerous proposition to short. Uh, in fact, I, I, I've dabbled with a couple of shorts and had to cover them pretty quick because it's just it's not yet a market that um, that is ready to be shorted. Uh, it, you, there are different strategies you can do to try uh, to, to kind of position yourself that you have skin in the game if the market turned or a way of reducing the volatility of your portfolio uh, by having some of that downside uh, hedges built into your portfolio. Uh, and actually, that's, that's one of the strategies that I, I think is really useful today is uh, what I'm doing in a lot of cases, I'm actually rolling equity long positions I have into uh, deep in the money call options. And uh, what I'm converting there is that uh, a high delta call option is actually uh, in some degree or another synthetically behaving the same as the underlying. Now there's tax considerations. If you have big capital gains, you've created a tax disposition and other considerations. But when when I roll into that, you've actually created a convexity in the position that if a market correction starts, um, uh, you actually, uh, uh, the worse it gets, the slower your loss 
is is incurring and wow. so yeah it, well it's 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 a it's about the natural convexity of delta, uh, delta. and uh, and so you have a situation where uh, in these periods, I might not necessarily be shorting the market, but I'm positioning myself that where I'm not going to get my face ripped off if the market does start a liquidity event to the downside and I have ways of managing the risk out. And uh, and that's one of the things I actually pride myself in the portfolio, like uh, in in the uh, in my, the portfolio that I have there during the entire COVID crash, uh, I only experienced a 7% drawdown on my account. Uh, during the whole period because I was able to offset so much with the way that I positioned it. And then I was there for the turn. And so it, it, you want to find ways of using options. And, and that's, that's another thing. Most people, when they learn about options, they immediately associate with speculation, with leverage. I'm going to go and with a $10,000 account, I'm going to control $100,000 of long equity, right? They, they basically using the option as a gambling tool as a way of, of getting a big return and then you can parade all over the internet and look at my 500% return on this position, well, right? Taleb did amazingly this year. Yeah. So, <laughs> 25,000% yeah. update. Yeah. But what I, I like to look at options as a risk management tool. Uh, to me, it's about how do I make sure that when the left tail risk kicks in, when when the market really starts to get ugly, that my portfolio is not getting killed. Uh, that uh, if uh, how am I reducing the overall volatility? When you do that, especially for people uh, such as yourselves that are like looking at sharp ratios or Tino ratios and all this stuff, the volatility or standard deviation of your portfolio becomes a big consideration. If you can reduce the overall volatility that you're experiencing, you're going to have much better. Uh, uh, you know, numbers coming out in terms of your performance and, and whether you're creating alpha in the portfolio, right? And so I like to look at options as hedging tools. I think this is like an interesting part to get into and, and really comes down to cash management, right? I think, you know, I yeah. used to be a, a poker player and when you're going into the table, you're not getting 100% of your, of your bankroll and yeah. going to play no limit hold'em, right? You would need to have 100, 150 times whatever you're playing so that you can survive the ups and downs of the drawdowns, yeah. right? The drawdowns yeah. of your cash flow. I can't imagine you're going out there and putting all of your money in options that have data decay, that have you know. All, oh, absolutely. These so you you have to. How do you manage? I guess is the question. How do you manage your cash? Generally speaking, given that the you really are getting non-recourse leverage, so you can do a lot with that. Yeah, uh, you know what? It, it comes back down to what we were talking about at the beginning. I actually size my risk as a percentage of the portfolio, very similar to your uh, your your um, uh, example of of uh, using gambling. Uh, it, like you're, what you're trying to do is size your risk. So a lot of traders mistakenly. Uh, are saying, "I believe this will happen. This option position will make me the most amount of money." If it happens, and then when it doesn't happen, they have their faces ripped off, and uh, and they take monstrous losses because they because an option has to be uh, considered an absolute risk. Like a, an option gets zeroed when you're wrong, um, and and you have to uh, position in your portfolio based upon 
sizing the trade that that is actually a realistic chance of happening. Uh, and um, and you, you have to, to approach your trades, but when you're building asymmetric trades, and so this is where we could talk a little bit about the difference between trading and gambling, because when someone goes into a, a casino, they're, uh, they're looking for a probability edge. They're looking for an edge where the mathematical probability is better for me and at this moment because I counted the cards or I did whatever, and now I'm going to start betting because I know that I've got the edge. Um, for as, me as a trader, I look for my edge in the asymmetry of the trade and not the probabilities of the trade. In fact, sometimes I might only be scoring a 40% win rate, but sometimes I'm getting a four or five to one payoff. Uh, and so even though I might be losing even more often than I'm winning, you know, if every time you lose, you lose a dollar, but every time you win, you're winning three or four, uh, then even with a 50% success rate, you're, you're raking in huge amounts of money. And so me, I don't focus on claiming to always be right and never wrong. And f I found some secret holy grail where all my trades work. No, I have a good whack of losers that come in, but I, I can actually contain the risk, manage the risk. I have a way of, of, uh, of, of uh, managing those losses down to small paper cuts that are just a part of the trading process. And then I'm there for the big picture move, that big move that you catch and, 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 uh, and win that big payoff. And that has... Sometimes one trade will make me more than I lost on on six trades, right? Like I think, I think you you're nailing a so so a couple of things. One, investing is something, and it's very different than trading. Very different. The business of trading, yeah, is is what we're talking about here. And you have to have the trading plan and do this in yes. an extremely disciplined way. You're, you're taking these these very small. Uh, portions and and hoping to get large payoffs, almost like a, a VC would um, yes. in, in an investing uh, framework. Yes. And so that's that 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 really has to be stated. I want to state that explicitly. So this don't try this at home if you don't have the trading plan, if you haven't looked into or the knowledge the things, or the knowledge, right? And and if you don't, if you lack the knowledge, go get the knowledge, Patrick. You've got great uh, information yeah. and courses. Use some guidance and, and that sort of thing. And so, so the, the trading side of it is, um, that part is, uh, exceptionally important. And then I forgot what I was going to say in, oh, and then from a behavioral perspective, when you think about the behavioral edge that you're exploiting, well, think about this. How do people act? They, you know, there's, there's the, the bias of sell the winners or, and keep the losers, right? And in this case, you're saying, no, no, we sell all the losers. The losers have a very fixed cost. And we beat the winners into full and total submission. Love it. Exactly. Right. And, and so by doing so, what is the behavioral ability for participants in the market to be able to do that, to actually lose on seven out of 10 trades, make seven or eight times the money on the three trades and do that over and over and over again? So, so you can improve. Uh, it's a trade-off because right. if you're going for the big, big win, you have to ride an option a little longer than someone else would. And so a lot of times a trader might be just targeting a double on an option. And they might be able to hit a, a winning percentage greater than 50% uh, in, in the process. And so I, it's just my style happens to be mm. more that BC model, which is right. like 
I'm, I'm, I, I want to catch that, that big macro trend and ride it for everything. Right. And, yeah. and, and, you know, I've caught some really big wins, um, doing that way, but there's been a fair share of paper cuts along the way where you're, you're testing the market. Is this where the breakout's happening? Is this where the opportunity is emerging? Nope. Nope. I took a loss. I'm going to go to the sideline and, and reposition, right? But I, what I love about it is you don't get trapped with your losers. Uh, you know, the, the funny thing is back at when I, in my very early days at CIBC, um, uh, one stat that I found out from the discount brokerage side is like 90% of discount brokerage accounts are dormant. They basically uh, are not trading at all. And one of the reasons that is a common thing is because the, these retail investors start losing on their stocks and they refuse to sell them at a loss. And that stock, then that portfolio just they becomes- ignore it. They, they just ignore it's it. It's, it's, it's just a poor, yeah, it's a long-term investment. It's just a, it, becomes it becomes a long-term a, investment. It becomes a portfolio that you're waiting for this thing to turn. And as a trader- you're, you have to always be looking for the new next opportunity, the next thing, and you can't get trapped in trades that aren't working. And what I love about the methodology of using options, even though we've got carry costs and theta burn and all these other issues, uh, it forces you out. It forces you back to a neutral state where you can come to the markets again with a clean slate and say, where's the next opportunity? Where, wh where's the next uh, position to take, right? Do you, do you find just one more, one more follow on question? Sorry. Guys. Do you find that last one for me? Do you find that you're, when you look at your trades and, and uh, do you find they follow sort of the Pareto principle then like sort of 20% of the trades provide the vast majority of the actual profits or is, it, sure. is, it, a, is it a smaller? For sure. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, but I think uh, you, like, even if you listen, um, uh, read some of the the top traders in uh, in market wizards. They'll give you a similar style uh, kind of things where where it's like they'll say something like I think it was Kamal Shea that said uh, that I come up with thirty four major investment themes a year and make all my money on four of them. Uh, you know, it's it's this idea where where you're always trying to find out where is the next big move, where is the next opportunity, but you allocate money to these trades to discover which of them is going to be the trade. And when and you discover that, no, this is the wrong idea. I got this wrong. You have to be able very quickly as a trader willing to say, no, I have to go to the sideline and rethink this. Or you know, maybe I got my timing wrong. Maybe this opportunity is good, but it's just going to happen six months from now. You have to, you have to be able to go back and uh, neutralize yourself emotionally. And, and trading is, is completely, uh, like investing, like when when you're a money manager, such as yourselves, and you're you're going through it, you have a, a portfolio construction theory. You have a way that you uh, allocate assets and do all of this. But as a trader, you're in the trenches. So it's sort of uh, the way I say, like I was using that analogy of being in a in a World War One trench and bullets are flying over your head. You're you're down there in the trenches, fighting at the front line, and uh, and you have to. And so it's all emotions. It's all emotion. And you, in order to be a good trader, you have to be humble and you have to have self-discipline. Uh, if you don't, you're screwed. You're, you're done. Like uh, you, you might get lucky out right off the bat, but the market will uh, quickly um, uh, kind of school you at some point if you, if you don't have that ability to, to have rules, discipline, ability to stay emotionally calm 
uh, to ride through that. It's a very important things to, to develop in yourself. You've talked about the sizing, right? Uh, but say you have a position or a trade that you are got pretty big convictions on and you think that the maximum position there could be 4% of your portfolio, let's call it. How would you go about building? Are you going to say, are you going to break that up into quarters or something and start? And then if that position goes against you, are you are, are you willing to add to that up until a certain point? Or if it goes in your favor, but you haven't really gotten to the size that you want, are you buying into that trend going up in your favor? H- how do you think about that trade-off? I add into winners. And so uh, because I use Fibonacci's for the predominant uh, technical technique, uh, the first entry is actually incredibly important. Uh, it, there's a, a tactical thing, and I usually do leg into trades. And so the first trade is always a little bit smaller than you'll ultimately want to be carrying uh, when if the position is developing into it being a true winner. And so you start by, it's like a stress test. You're putting your foot in the water with, uh, with uh, your handle on the exit button, like the eject button on a, a fighter jet. You're like, get me out of here. Like you're, you're, te- you're stress testing whether the idea is. And then if the trade starts working, then you build it. And, and you build it once it's winning. I don't add to losers. Uh, I, what I do is I'll, I'll be sidelined. And I'll revisit the trade when it looks like it's setting up again. It just uh, often uh, when the trade is entered incorrectly right off the bat, it's a it's a timing issue. It's a sense that you might be right about the bigger macro story, but you're wrong on the timing of it. Like you know, it's uh, it's uh, it's a like a given example. Gold just uh, what was it a couple of weeks ago? Uh, here we could even share the chart on that. Uh, let me show the chart on gold. Um, there we go. As you're pulling that up, Patrick, and talking about that, also touch on when do you consider those paper profits yours or do you ever? Do you ever consider the paper profits yours because the the trade starts at a 1% risk? Do you say, oh, this has grown by 30% and and I'm incorporating that or are all those paper profits sort of not calculated and you just keep your stop or where your exit is? So, uh, So this is where option strategies are amazing. Uh, and what, what I often will do is if there's a, if I believe a market has gotten too frothy, uh, gone too far, too fast, but I still really love it in the bigger picture. I want to keep riding this trend for even months more, but it's just gone way ahead of itself on the short term. The biggest mistake I feel traders do is selling. What happens is that, uh, once you sell your position, it's so hard to get back in. Uh, once, once you've let go of a trade thinking that it's a short term thing, that a thing, finding that re-entry, uh, is actually one of the hardest things. And so once I've entered at an amazing moment, I never want to let it go until I've ridden the trade to the maximum and then I walk away. And so uh, what I often will do is strategies such as a risk reversal or a collar is known as a collar. Uh, on top of a position. And so here, like I'll give you an example, right? Um, well, first of all, let's just give an example on, on this gold trade and a failed uh, breakout. So uh, essentially this entire rally, uh, we were looking at this as the beginning of the next gold advance. We thought that, that the, this was a deep enough retracement in gold and that gold was actually beginning a brand new breakout. And I was early. I was wrong. It, it didn't. It did not follow through, and uh, and then gold gets slammed on the downside. Uh, so to, when when looking at a trade like this, 
uh, the first position is you go long gold uh, at your tactical moment and you're uh, you're going to give it a chance to work. But when a trade proves that you got early, it doesn't mean that gold isn't going to go up. Maybe maybe gold is going to uh, you know correct downwards and and consolidate, and it's probably going to rally. But it might be a March or April rally. It, 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 you know, bulling it in January, I might have been two three months early. And so my job is that if I got in too early, I go back to the sideline. That's where I cut the loss. It's clearly my timing was off. And I'm back to cash and neutral, and I'm looking at where is the next tactical opportunity to go long gold. Uh, I'm not going to go and average down the position and keep working it. Uh, I'm, I, I literally, because you want the emotional reset. You want the emotional reset that I'm back to neutral. Because once that position has gone against you in a loss, you start doing crazy things like justifying why you're long gold and doing all these things. I'm, I'm a trader at first. I only want to be in things that are working. Uh, I, you How know, big I, is that testing though? Is that a third? Is that a, like half of your position? Maybe a quarter? How, um, how, what size of the max? That actually depends on the options market. Uh, if, if the volatility is very low, I don't have a lot of Vega risk. I can buy the premium very cheap. Uh, I might take the position much larger than I normally would because the options market is allowing me to size my risk uh, very well and I can be far more aggressive. And getting in early gives me more asymmetry to the upside. But if I'm coming in, and especially let's say during a market crash, volatility is going through the roof. Uh, your option premiums are ridiculously expensive. You you can be totally right on the option, uh, on the market timing, but to hedge hedge it out on with the options market is so expensive that it's not the right time to make the big move. And I might trade that position much smaller right off the bat and wait for things to normalize before I'm adding more aggressively. So I'm a very adaptive to the, the real conditions of the market. Right. Uh, you, you have to kind of size up where you are, where we are in the market in order to make that that sizing decision. But I'll give you an example. Let's say I want to talk about, let's say, Freeport McMorrin. And uh, I was blessed to have published uh, uh, this thing back when it was around eight dollars. Uh, we bought uh, leap options out on, on at eight dollars on Freeport and we've been riding it ever since. And when this thing hit, you know, this, uh, this kind of uh, $16, $18 area, all of our leap options were up uh, over 100%. Some of them were 200% return. And every member just wanted, should we take our profits? Should we take our profits? So, right, right? so like we got in somewhere uh, on the breakouts over here and, uh, and we're talking about the price over here, right? And, uh, and I'm like, yeah, you know what? It probably at this moment has gotten frothy. It's due for a correction, uh, but we can't sell it because there's all these fundamental reasons why copper can be bullish and, and the conditions in this market uh, can keep working. And why the hell would we lose our, our position when we have uh, secured an $8 purchase price of Freeport McMorrin? Why would I give this up when I have an entire year of time uh, to, to ride this. We bought the leap options. We were like out to 2022 on this position. So we collared it. So we, we bought a, 
Uh, we sold the covered call above against the, the position. It's not really a covered call because when you sell against a, um, a leap, it's a, a, it's a calendared right uh, and not a, uh, an official caller. And then we used the premium to buy a protective put. And so we created a, a risk reversal hedge wrap. Then when this little market correction happened on the downside, as soon as we realized that that was all that was happening on, um, on the stock and it was reversing back up, we removed the hedge and we were still long and we've been riding it ever since. And so while a bunch of traders would have been already knocking themselves out of the trade up 100, 200 percent, we're up like 400, 500 percent on these leaps. Uh, and a lot of along the way, there would have there was an infinite number of reasons to have taken the profits. And the only way you make the big money is finding a reason to stay in, and yet finding ways to hedge out the risk that if in fact you got caught in the market top, uh, and and it was reversing, that I put some sort of a way to protect the profits that I've made. And and this is this is where you have to be tactical about these things, right? So this is interesting. What made you want to do a leap instead of a shorter term call option? Like, is that a macro call? Yeah, it was a macro call on the on the fact that uh, we couldn't believe that they were giving because we were very bullish copper. Like, I, I remain a, a commodity bull. Uh, I think that we've transitioned into a commodity bull market that will last maybe uh, many years into the future. The problem today is that. The, we're way too frothy on so many of these things. These commodity stocks have gotten uh, almost, uh, uh, you know. Well, they're tech-like. Yeah, they're tech-like. <laughs> like it literally has gotten like if you're, I, it, if you didn't tell me this was Freeport McMoran, I would have told you it's an EV stock, right? Yeah. Like or some solar play or something. These things have gotten stupid frothy. At some point, they're going to mean revert. I mean, it's not that fundamentally Freeport McMoran is in a great stock, but at some point this thing could easily print 25 bucks or, or 23 on some sort of a, a market correction. And it's just going to be a buy on dip in the bigger picture, but boy, will it be painful to anyone who hasn't hedged it out uh, when, when one of these corrections kicks in. Right. And Can we, okay, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, no, I'm, that's, I'm done. Well, I, I'm just wondering if we, I'm going to ask if we can shift gears. I'm going to ask my partners yeah. if it's okay that we shift gears a little bit from the nuances in in the in the trading and talk a little bit more about how you paint this macro mosaic, how your, you know, what are the key macro indicators that you're that you focused on? What are you focusing on now? Um, I'm going to so I'm going to ask a trail of questions and I apologize yeah. for that. So you're making a macro mosaic you, you use indicators. What have you used recently? How have those indicators evolved? Have you, can you share with us about, you know, you being a, a professional trader doing this on a regular basis and th the changing sort of flight instrument panel, if you will, has it changed a lot or are you using a lot of the same items that you've used for years? So, so creating the macro landscape and all that go. Uh, well, the first thing, the, the biggest change has been the bond market. Uh, the bond market over the decade has been a fabulous indicator within the macro landscape. And now that we've really reached a zero interest rate regime and, and central banks generally are losing their effectiveness with monetary policy, uh, you... Um, 
the the signals from the bond markets are no longer as relevant. It's not that they're not. I mean, the bond market can still do something that will freak people out. Uh, like you can't ignore the bond market, but the but the 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 macro landscape that uh, that I've always had uh, over a decade has dynamically changed in the last year, uh, just because of where we are in that. But but to me. Uh, it's really uh, one big trade anchored off of the U.S. dollar. So uh, until we go off of a, a, a U.S. dollar-centric system, uh, that being the world reserve currency, the U.S. dollar is the center of all macro. Uh, and, uh, and it's one of the key, uh, and of course, from a commodity perspective, oil is a very important commodity in that same scope. And so when you have oil and um, and you have the dollar uh, and they're the, the the core anchors it becomes the center pin of the reflation trade versus uh, a, dif- a disinflationary cycle that often is occurring within within there and so uh, the very first underpinning um, thing that uh, that I always look for is what are the predominant trends uh, in the dollar that 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 has to be the number one thing to watch and maybe there's a point in the coming future as uh, we transition away from that, I mean, there's so much talk about this digital currency stuff and whether or not some new central bank digital currency will uh, uh, will emerge that will uh, dethrone the importance of the U.S. dollar as uh, as as a the, you know the center linchpin of of macro. But until that happens, the U.S. dollar is it. And um, and one of the uh, the biggest themes that we have seen in this cycle is the 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 derivative of what happens once the dollar begins trending so the dollar downtrend is uh, one of the key uh, uh precipitating drivers of the reflation trade and uh and so when uh, once you have uh that dollar trend in place then you uh, generally see strength in commodities uh, and, and, and each commodity has its own little fundamental story. You know, it's not so relevant to natural gas as it is to oil or some other type of a commodity. But when we basket commodities as an aggregate, generally commodities are in bull trend in a, uh, in a reciprocal fashion to the dollar trend. And so when commodities are, are bulling, particularly oil, it becomes one of the key input variables to inflation expectations. Uh, and, uh, and so you notice that the moment oil started to break out above uh, 40 plus on the upside, suddenly all the uh, break evens are starting to blow out and all these different things. You're starting to see inflation starting to be priced into the market. You saw 10-year yields starting to increase, all, all of the different uh, backdrops of that. And so this is all intertwined into one big trade, which is dollar down and the reflation trade stuff working. Uh, and one of the single biggest things to identify is when has this current cycle exhausted itself? Uh, and, um, uh, and one of the things that bothers me, I, uh, and uh, you know, me and Kevin always joke about it on the market huddle, but uh, we both are, are natural contrarians and we both hate when everyone agrees with us. And the problem today is the dollar bear is the most consensus view out there. That's like right. it, it, it is Everyone's so. A dollar bear. 
everybody is a dollar bear. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't a macro fundamental reason behind dollar weakness. But when uh, it's, I always look at it like a boat and all the traders run to one side of the boat, the boat is almost going to capsize. Naturally, intuitively, some of the uh, uh, people are going to run to the other side of the boat to try to, uh, uh, to level it. And this, uh, this reaction function that happens is what can cause what, what I believe is going to be a U.S. dollar short squeeze. And it doesn't actually have to be a fundamental reason behind it. So I think it's going to be very much a liquidity-driven event. It's just it's such a crowded theme. Um, commodities are overextended to the upside. Uh, the dollar is oversold to the downside. And everyone is so convinced everything will continue that uh, the market, again, plays that role of the great humiliator. You just know there's just something coming. That it, it, you know, I, when, I, when I worked back at CIBC, uh, my bo- uh, the portfolio manager I worked for, uh, my boss, uh, used to always say, it's what you don't know, you don't know, that always uh, uh, hammers the market. And so like everyone was so sure it was the elections that was going to hammer the market. No way the elections were going to cause the event because everyone saw the elections coming from a mile away. It's, it's been priced into the market. All the outcomes have been considered. It's always the surprise. It's something that we are not talking about on the show. You know, we've been on for an hour and we haven't talked about it because we don't know it's coming yet. There's a, there's that one event that's going to cause, um, uh, a sentiment shift. And it's going to cause that incredibly crowded trade to have a counter trend squeeze. It's going to be an event that happens the other way. But I still think it'll be a buying opportunity. I, I, I think that this the macro trend that's been established is one that will probably be with us for many years. But this is the wrong time to get into the reflation trade. If you haven't been long commodities for the last six months, if you haven't been short the dollar for the last six months, this is the wrong time to be getting onto this bandwagon. There's too many tactical players going short the dollar, long commodities. And the macro players that have been playing it for a long time are waiting. So we need to shake them off. There's exactly there's going to be a, there's going to be a shake moment and and that doesn't make me a commodity bear it doesn't make me a super US dollar bull uh, but um, but there's no asymmetry left in pressing this trade you're you're this is the ninth inning eighth ninth inning of this move maybe and sometimes in the ninth inning comes a really good run and there might be a big kind of blow off there could be some big kind of uh, still one more surge in the prevailing trend but this is the wrong time to be jumping onto this bandwagon right now you got to wait for a new tactical opportunity uh, to be uh, to be playing this storyline. What do you think are some of the catalysts that might? Uh, I mean, everybody would think perhaps the inflation scare, a, a potential inflation scare. We're definitely going to get a denominator effect because inflation prints were so low because of COVID last year. You're going to get that initial denominator effect. You would definitely have to see a follow through for there to be real inflation, but. That uh, uh, head fake might be, or or maybe something on the geopolitical end. Do you, do you have any thoughts on the catalyst? It's, it's an interesting, it might be a reaction function. Sometimes a market turns without a reason, but the media needs a reason, so they make a reason. And so what happens is that uh, you might have a dollar turn, 
And everyone at that day was when Janet Yellen came out and said something like, we don't support a weak dollar policy, or she'll say something that, and, and suddenly everyone's like, Yellen ruined the party, right? Like, they'll blame her, but the market was way overdue for the squeeze. It just conveniently was the headline that corresponded with the market turn, and it becomes the anchor of what we use as the excuse why the dollar is rallying. Uh, it's, I, I um, love that. Every morning, every day, it, uh, I, I look at the the Apple stock charts thing. So I'm going to the first thing. I'd, and there's yeah. always a reason for why the market gained or lost money, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, just, it's, it's, it's great. Somebody they got to write something, right? They're always the looking for a story. Everybody borrowed the headline. The and that became the thing for the day and totally agree that you, it's what you don't know, right? You, yeah. You, it, it'll become that later, but it's what you don't know really, that you don't know. And I think COVID was one of them. We all knew that COVID was out there. Nobody paid it any attention. We didn't know that it was going to be as bad as no, it was. No one cares. No one cares till everyone cares and they all care at once and it creates and a liquidity care. event. So so it's like you'll have a headline and, and no one's reacting. So it can't be that important. And then and, and it that's goes right. another, another headline, right. no reaction. That's a thing. It's, uh, it's amazing. Uh, uh, it's the... The part about market timing, I'm going to go off a little tangent a little bit, but the part about um, uh, the markets that is incredibly different than uh, something like being a bookie and gambling. So let's say I'm a bookie making a book on the Super Bowl, right? The Super Bowl is going to come up eventually here. And uh, and let's say um, I'm the one that's creating the handicap and I'm, I'm putting in uh, uh, you know the, uh, everything so that I'm hoping that as a bookie, there's an equal amount of people that will bet on the one team versus the other team. And in the end, I'm going to make my spread for having, having um, uh, made the book. Uh, the thing is, is that in the, in the gambling world, it doesn't matter whether I priced that uh, Super Bowl game wrong and everyone bet on team A versus team B because it has no impact or bearing on the outcome of the game. When those players hit the uh, hit the field, they're still going to play a football game and they're both both teams are trying to win the Super Bowl and how everyone bet on the, the game outcome didn't have a bearing influence on the actual outcome of the game. But the stock markets are very different, or macro markets, any markets. Um, there's a self-fulfilling prophecy to the markets, which is if everyone believes something is going to go up, then they buy it, which forces the, uh, uh, the market to go up, which only confirms to everyone that they were right about their thesis. And it becomes a, a self-feeding loop that, uh, that uh, buying actually begets more buying. And this is why... Uh, uh, um, I best describe uh, the markets as a Giffen good. Have you guys ever heard the term Giffen good before? No. So a Giffen good is something that uh, defies normal supply and demand. Uh, so the normal supply and demand is that when prices in, in let's say, microeconomics, if, if prices go up, demand should go down. Right. That's uh, that's your 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 that's one hundred and one economics. Right. But a Giffen good is that when the price goes up it actually increases the demand. And, and a good example is Toronto real estate, right? Because uh, you can't lose money on Toronto real estate, right? And so what happens is that as it goes up, it only actually confirms to everybody that that statement is true 
And therefore, that many more people leverage up and go into it that much more, which actually, and this is what, what what's happening with Bitcoin. This is what's happening with Tesla. It's this feedback loop that, uh, that everyone wants to be making money where everyone else is. And everyone comes up with a story. And the one that looks the one, like the, they're right is the one that, uh, that ends up getting more of the money flow. And in the end, the, it creates that feedback mechanism that's in there. And so we're seeing bubbles everywhere in the market because of this feedback loop of this, this Giffen element in the markets. And, and what happens with this is that this loop lasts until it exhausts itself. And inevitably, every bubble exhausts itself. And, um, and Tesla will exhaust itself and Bitcoin will exhaust itself. Every one of these parabolic rises. But until it does, um, this uh, feedback mechanism, self-confirmation, uh, keeps money flowing in there, misallocated to something that has no fundamental basis being where they are. The problem is with individuals like us that actually understand fundamentals, you start looking at the balance sheet and the, the management and all this stuff. And you're like, what the hell is going on here? This makes absolutely no sense. And, but yet it's actually the market taking a life of its own based on these feedback loops that actually is what happens. And so as traders, Versus invest, like as money managers such as yourselves, you have to actually have a fundamental reason for buying a lot of things. It's hard to just say we're getting in just because it's hot. Well, I think uh, what's the professor? I can't remember his name. We've talked about him numerous times, but he studied bubbles in, yeah. in uh, you know, university settings, people coming in. Ver Ver know. Smith, Vernon, Vernon. Vernon, yeah. Um, Vernon Smith. Vernon, Vernon Smith. Smith. So yeah. what he found is that, listen, there is a, predictable shape to these bubbles like you can yes. tell this is something that human beings do what i can't tell you in 30 years of doing this is when they end right right they, they look very similar and they'll but trying to time these things maybe he's not a trader so he probably hasn't figured it out but it is interesting how uh, there isn't a pattern that's so obvious that everybody can get it right Right. So, so, so uh, how, do you, how do you manage that fact? How well, you, you know, how you position your trades and whatnot, but is, are you very defensive right now because of all this? So, so what I've learned the hard way of trying to catch market tops because I, I pride myself on, on I, I'm one of those uh, guys that tries to be a rock star and actually catch market tops. Uh, um, it doesn't work most of the time, by the way. I'm not trying to. to it, 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 you have to be. You have to be a, a very brave to attempt it. But what I have learned after uh, 10, 20 years of of trying to trade this way, that actually catching the very first uh, blow off top is actually the wrong top to catch. Actually, here, let me share my chart here. Let's take a look mm -hmm. at Bitcoin here for a moment. Uh, and I want to go back to... We're so, going to get a so, lot of hate. Lot well, of that's, hate that's okay. That's actually a very good sign uh, that the market top is close. Is that when Who's you... What no point are we got here on the channel? Yeah, exactly. Anyway, but the point I want to get it is forget this current state of the where we are. I want to go back to the market top from... Uh, this, this was the, two, let's go back to 2017, 18, right? And so here was, uh, here was the parabolic rise of Bitcoin back into its uh, 2017 peak, right? Now you can sit here exactly to the, what you were saying. It's so difficult to try to catch the top. Like to say that I know exactly where this is going to stop is nearly impossible. 
because it, uh, the, the, this thing is like a freight train moving down a track with, uh, uh, with all this momentum and you, you trying to be a rock star and standing on the track saying, this is where it's going to stop. You're just going to get run over. But um, after a bubble bursts, uh, there tends to be this pattern, which is it sells off and then has a failed rally. That is where you short bubbles. You don't short into the, the parabolic rise on the upside. You actually wait until the bubble has actually broken. And then is when you actually are, are engaging the downside of the short. You know, so you don't ever try to catch the actual absolute top. You first wait for the bubble to burst, and then you engage the short side after it's burst. Uh, that's what I've learned. Uh, so I've stopped trying to catch the absolute tops. I wait for the excesses to actually turn, and then I'll start short selling. So does it work on the flip side there? So April 2018, was I don't even know. Was that the bottom? I'm also a no-coiner, by the way, or a very tiny coiner. Yeah, yeah. No, um, no, it kept bleeding. It kept bleeding all the way down, right? Like it, it went all the way down to 3,000 from 20,000, right? 85% wipeout uh, that, that lasted over a year, right? And th th this is what – this is the cycle that's – this isn't just – this isn't about Bitcoin. I don't – this is uh, – this happens to stocks all the time. This happens to gold 2011. It absolutely happens to gold. It happens to everything. Like uh, this, uh, th this boom bust cycle is the nature of what happens in markets. You allow markets to be free trading. Uh, human nature creates these boom bust cycles. And all I'm trying to identify here, I, I picked on Bitcoin, but the point is don't try to catch the, the parabolic rise and the top at the very peak. You wait till the bubble's broken and then you short it is the way I would put it. That's what my word. About, what do you think about the macro narrative that's been going on? I mean, the, the narrative now uh, predominantly says that there's institutional money coming in. They're putting in all the guardrails so that you can get the, the, the big endowments, the big whatever. The institutional money is now really contemplating this as a serious asset. And, and, and that is allegedly one of the reasons why this thing has gotten so frothy uh, all the way up to 40,000. How do, how do you square that with your with your technical analysis? Uh, well, listen, uh, I am I, very suspect that these institutions are long-term buy-and-hold investors of Bitcoin. There are, there, there are these big institutions that are allowing their prop traders to go and try to profit from the upside. But uh, there are hard stops on prop traders. And as soon as Bitcoin starts going down, these institutions that are buying on the way up are just as going to be selling just as fast on the way down. Uh, I, I don't subscribe to that. And generally, I, but while I do believe there's a di digital revolution in currency coming, uh, I don't believe it's going to come on a private currency. Uh, that is, uh, it, it's going to be a government uh based digital currency that is ultimately going to prevail. Because if you think about it, while we can be capitalists and we can say markets should be free trading and, and, and privatized and all of these different things, uh, money is a social contract. Uh, and, uh, and even though a lot of people get disenfranchised by the idea that money is fiat and they can create it anytime they want, um, there's an actually important function to that. For instance, uh, let's just say uh, there was a disaster. Let's say in North America, Yellowstone blew up. 
and half of America is covered in ash. Uh, and there's a, a huge natural disaster that happens. In the end, uh, the ability of a government to run massive deficits to, uh, to support people, to clean up the mess, to do all of this, uh, you know, that's how they funded World War II. This is how different things happen. Governments need to be able to access um, uh, money, and the natural w uh, way of doing so is by it being fiat. Uh, I mean, even when, it's, uh, w even when it was backed by gold, as soon as a crisis happened, they would drop the gold standard and immediately turn it back into a fiat currency. That's happened through history over and over again. And um, the idea that we're going to have some private uh, digital currency like Bitcoin, where something, wh what is the statistic? I, hopefully I'm saying it right, but something like 98 uh, percent of Bitcoin is controlled by like 2% of the wallets. I don't know what the exact, or 90% of Bitcoin is controlled by 2% of the wallets. So you have, I mean, in, in a world where wealth inequality is the biggest issue, we're going to have these private wallets that we don't even know half of these people who own these, where they own any, who they own taxes to, or, or how the, this money would even be allocated. What we're going to do is we're going to take Bitcoin to a million dollars and allow these people to become multi-billionaire, if not trillionaires, uh, for what? Uh, like our governments are going to create digital currencies that are, I think Bitcoin is the Palm Pilot of, uh, of the 2000s. It, it, it's at, my Palm Pilot. Loved it. Uh, exactly. Loved it and you know what? At, at the time, it was the technology. It was the, the big thing. But, uh, but the, this revolution that's happening is going to be dynamically different years from now. And Bitcoin was just going to have played an important role in developing it. And, uh, but it, I don't think that Bitcoin is the end game. There's a much different um, uh, way that the cryptocurrency story is going to play out. And maybe we don't even – it, it's, it's, you don't even need to know it. It's just – it's not going to be Bitcoin. Right. It's, uh, it's, it's going to be something different. So Bitcoin is Netscape. Netscape, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. the next um, – the Google, we just don't know yet. So, yeah, there's – Patrick, let me have a, let me ask you a question that I've always wondered. Whenever I speak with a trader, with a prop trader, you know, it's super exciting. You guys are at the you know cutting edge of trading. You live and die by the market every day. You're you're trying to, to come up with the latest and greatest idea, and you're cutting losses and you're taking more losses than your gains. But you have, generally speaking, the the people I know have a very good outcome, very good returns, and yet I don't find any pension plan, large institution, hiring an army of prop traders to represent 100% of their assets. So I'm, I'm curious to, to understand what the aversion to, to traders like you to add value to large pools of money is. Is it that just well, capacity constraint? First of all, first of all uh, what I would say is there's a very large failure rate in trading. Uh, so there, this is not something that this is the secret, the holy grail. You just got to learn to buy when the moving averages cross over and there's a green signal up or red signal down and you've got it figured out and you're going to beat the market. The, um, uh, the, the second thing is that it's, it's easy as a small trader to outperform. Uh, so, and a, a small trader, I mean, you're whipping around millions of dollars, uh, uh instead of, of billions. Once, uh, once you get big enough, uh, the, you, um, the way I describe it is, is that, um, 
big portfolios and pensions and things like this, they're like a um, an ocean, uh, sort of like a barge in an ocean. There's this huge uh, immovable object, this monstrous thing. And traders are like little tiny speedboats that are doing donuts around them and able to have the flexibility of, of being able to, to uh, adapt. But as soon as uh, you try to move that barge the same as these little speedboats. Uh, you can't. Uh, it, you're gonna, it, takes, it takes a mile to turn that barge. When you're managing big money, uh, trading starts losing its effectiveness. Uh, you need to, to find an edge, it's often you have to be small. Uh, you have to be nimble. You have to be able to get in and out of the market and no one know that you were there. Uh, once you start, like this is why you have to have so much respect for the Stanley Druckenmillers of the world because they did it, but with big money. Not like, uh, you know, uh, like I could turn around and, and be whipping around seven figures, but I don't know whether I could ever uh, do that with a, with a fund that large, right? Like uh, it's, it's one of these things where size matters. It really does, mm -hmm. right? And, um, and, and the second thing is, is that to become a good trader takes a lot of training. Uh, it's not a part-time endeavor. And this is the thing that like, it's why I laugh when I see all these TikTok things about all these people that I seem to have figured out during a market bubble, how to make all this easy money on the upside. Uh, becoming a good trader is, uh, is a lot of pain along the way, a lot of mistakes. And you have to endure uh, the school of hard knocks of learning uh, through trial and error on actually how to find your edge. And there are a lot of times where the market changes. So you work really hard to get an edge. And then suddenly a year or two later, uh, the market uh, evolves and your edge is gone. And suddenly now you have to almost reinvent yourself as a trader. Uh, you know, and this is where uh, portfolio managers, uh, you know, you anchor off of, um, the long-term appreciation of equities, things that happen in a slow and steady course as long as you stay the course over a certain time horizon. And, um, and you know, for most people, that is uh, a much easier way to go down the journey. Uh, and trading, you, you take so much punishment that you have to really love what you do. You have to love the markets. You have to love trading. You have to love being there in the trenches and, and doing this. If you don't, if you're doing it only for the money uh, and you're not doing it for the love of trading, uh, you're going to fail. You, you have to, you have to, because uh, you have to feel the markets. You have to understand them. You have to become almost one with them to, to be able to size it up. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, there are, there are people that are dedicated to it. And I, I love working with people that, that want to take that journey, but there is no, uh, I wish I, w I shouldn't, I don't want to make it sound like those TikTok traders have got it figured out. It's actually harder than, uh, than, uh, yeah, than it's it amazing looks. those TikTok traders, how, how they got they, it all they're even out. legal, they're legal to, to go out there and, and say what they're saying. It's amazing. But yeah, that was, that's just too, too, many of, too, too many, too many of them are, um, uh, there's too many of them for them, for anyone to regulate. You can't go into like, how do you go and stop someone, just some random person saying it? Like when you're a regulated institution and you go out and say something, it's easy for your regulators to come down and bear down on you and say, you can't say that. Right. Like, uh, but once you're just a, a Joe Schmo on a TikTok account, you can say whatever the hell you want and who the hell is going to, uh, to clamp down and remove you. 
uh, off of the internet, right? Like, and this is why there's so much misinformation out there, so many misleading things. There, uh, this is why I believe there has to be some sort of event because through history, like, uh, I'll uh, I'll leave it at this for you guys. Like, I remember back in 1999 as a kid, you know, I'm this 23 year old kid. Uh, just coming on to the tr- uh, a discount brokerage account uh, or brokerage uh, taking orders. And uh, back then, the hot shit was Nortel, right? Do you guys remember this? Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, Nortel was, uh, was, uh, was the hot shit. And, uh, and back then, one of the drivers behind it was the fact that Canadian RSPs had to be 80% allocated to Canadian equities. Canadian. And uh, and banks and resource stocks were dog shit back then, and uh, and so the only thing you could own that was making any money was tech, and there was only a handful of things you could own like JDS Uniphase, Nortel, that kind of stuff. What was the other one? Uh, there was an SN, no S uh, the cable one. It spun out. Um, yeah, but anyway, so the, there was uh, there there was only BlackBerry a also in that. No, uh, BlackBerry was two thousand seven. That was yeah. the uh, that was the next bubble. Uh, but back then, it, Nortel, and so everyone, just the way everyone's talking about the easy money of uh, of Bitcoin today, back then everyone owned Nortel. I mean, it, at at its peak, yeah, like forty percent of the TSX six. Right? No, no, no. It was uh, the it was the composite, and it, BCE and Nortel combined were thirty percent, thirty some odd percent of the entire Canadian capitalization of the entire Canadian stock market was in two stocks, and um, and. I just remember the froth back then. And I remember the story of this one, uh, one guy that phoned me up and he had, and Nortel at the time was trading like 120 bucks and it came down to like 90 bucks a share at the time. Uh, and it was going into its earnings. And this guy had his entire life savings in Nortel. Uh, and, um, and he basically calls me up. And yeah, I, I'm I'm not allowed to give advice. It's a it's a discount brokerage, and uh, and he says, "How many shares of Nortel can I buy on margin?" And I basically go and pull out the calculator, and I say, "You could buy uh, you could buy uh, another thirteen hundred shares of 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 Nortel." So this guy goes from like seven hundred shares to two thousand shares at three thirty, right before the uh, the earnings announcement on the close. Nortel goes and he goes and buys it uh, and Nortel goes and gaps from like 90 bucks to like $60 a share on the earnings miss. And this guy's account goes from, uh, from being worth like 70 grand to being worth minus $5,000 the next morning. And then I had to give him the phone call to tell him he's getting margin called. You know what the guy did, does? He sells it down the position and goes and gets a line of credit to uh, to meet the margin call on on the other part of the shares and then loses that too, and uh, so I my first taste into this business was watching severe destruction uh, and, and people losing a lot of money in bubbles and so when I see today uh, the kind of froth that is it just feels so 1999 it, it now. Every, people saying that the markets have become more efficient. I think we can say in 2020, there's a lot of inefficiencies out there. There is a lot of inefficiencies, but you know, it doesn't mean that there efficiency is efficiency is about market clearing, though. Let's be honest: like the market clears, it's efficient. Sure, hurting, yeah. hurting, hurting is, is still very much but, alive. But, 
there is, but there are the bubble stocks, right? Like a lot of those EV oh, yeah. names and other things. Yeah. They're the ones. Like I don't think I don't think like if you own um, uh, Enbridge and I have to uh, go, guys. I got to okay. go to another call. But Patrick, thank you so much. You guys wrap it up. I'll talk to you soon. Thank All you. Right, thanks. All right, cheers. Bye. Cheers. But you know, like I don't think that when the uh, when this turns, that like an end bridge is going to get hammered, right? Like these are these are stable stocks with real fundamentals, and they're they're basic. And so when you when you're building a portfolio and you're properly diversified amongst high quality names, you're going to be fine. But if you pumped everything into one of these uh, EV stocks that has gone five hundred percent in the last. Uh, a month, you know, at some point, the people that are buying this thing are going to get their faces ripped off uh, uh, on the other side of that, and um, and and so it's going to be so interesting to see uh, how this plays out. You know, like uh, I I know it ends badly, but I, when will it turn? What will it look like? What's going to go down and what's not? How uh, long what, is the easy money going to be around for? Yeah, I like. It's a big function of, of, of where interest rates are and the opportunity cost. And I'll tell you what, you guys can invite me back in the midst of the turn. We'll, we'll each grab a bag of popcorn and we'll sit here oh, and we'll watch, watch real time as, as, as the carnage. But oh, I know I wish I don't I don't wish any harm on any, anyone. But like you know, everyone's got to realize that there this isn't um, the market is perceived to be easy money, but it always has a way of correcting. It has always a way of, of those excesses being mean reverted. And, uh, and a lot of people always get hurt during that. So just be careful is the way I'd leave it. The, the people have to realize that if you're trading that really hot shit, you got to par it off a little bit. Make sure you're not leveraged. Make sure that, uh, that you uh, have, have some other things that can buffer it. Maybe find ways to hedge it. You got to be a little bit careful. Yeah, I think I think you you said it earlier how difficult it is to trade. I mean, you know, yeah. we've been in the markets forever. It is it is the most competitive landscape on the planet. Yeah. And so if you think you're going to be a weekend warrior of of the markets, you're kind of in trouble, right? So, yeah. you know, I think, you know, going back to the original stuff of what what we always talk about is if you're not going to play full time, diversify. You know, have that yeah. that kind of general growth, make sure that you're you can diversify in your stocks, your bonds, your, your gold, your commodities, get a little bit of everything. Yeah. And if you're going to do it, take it seriously. Know that you're going to take some licks as and you go and try, and try not to get enamored with it during the bull market because yeah. you know, the odds are against you, know, you at the end of the your, day. Your formative years or formative months end up being this massive bull market when you open up a TikTok and you say, this is how I buy. You see when this stock goes like this, that's when yeah. I buy. And then it goes that, I buy some more there. I yeah, didn't yeah. really see in these type of... And and you saw that in 98, 99, people leaving their jobs because they were making more money in the stock market than they were in their jobs. This is, in a way, yeah. many aspects of the market right now are there. And yeah. the euphoria, the ease of, of, of access through things like Robin Hood, uh, the, the Bitcoiners that are getting tattoos and, and riding it all the way up. You know, these it's wild times and you just got to be wild careful time. Um, and, uh, and diversify. Talk to the professional, and if you want to be a professional, know that you should start small and work your sure. way up. Amen, Patrick. Awesome. Uh, You've been very generous very, with your time, man. Thank very you. Very generous with your time. I, your your energy and enthusiasm is amazing. Can't wait to have you back soon, and uh, good luck in the trading world. Thank you very much. All right, take Enjoy it, guys. Barbados. I will. All right, cheers. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. 
You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.